Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of the gospel in this text. You alone grant sight, and it is a gift from you. Give it to us now as we look to your word and help us to see you and your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1819, just over 200 years ago, Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers wrote and preached what would arguably become his most famous sermon ever, the expulsive power of a new affection. And I don't remember the exact date that I first read it. It was in the early 2000s, and I was taking a class about a different Puritan preacher at the church we were attending. The teacher had us read the sermon, and we discussed it the following week um, for the opening of class. Like I said, I don't remember the year, but it was somewhere between 15 and 20 years ago. And it has stuck with me ever since. Um, that's the impact it had on me. And two reasons I bring, up, bring this up. First is to encourage you to go look it up. A simple Google search, Thomas Chalmers, the expulsive power of a new affection, and it'll get it for you. It's a, about an 11-page read. And once you have looked it up, read it. And just know that you should plan to read it a little slowly. It was written, like I said, just over 200 years ago in Scotland. So some of the English is a little bit different, but it's not too hard a read. The second reason I bring this up is because for a few years now, it's my, been my desire to preach that sermon here at Gospel Life Church because it fits so nicely on how we view the role of the gospel in our lives and the ongoing power that it has. We don't think of, and we don't want you to think of, the gospel as just the power to save. The moment of conversion, and then that's it. Then you're on your own for the rest of your life, right? You have your own strength to fight sin, and your own strength to be sanctified and pursue holiness. That's not the way the Christian life works. More on that later. Now, I'm not going to just read his sermon, but I am going to quote from it many times and a few times at length. So be ready. I'm also not going to spend, and then I am going to spend time in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which, oddly enough, that was not the text that Chalmers was preaching from when he wrote that sermon. He was preaching from 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Corinthians, however, fits nicely with this sermon, and I think it will help us see clearly. 1 John 2.15 reads this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The main thrust of Chalmers is to help his people love the world less and love God more. Now, he says there are two ways this happens. There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon to simply withdraw its regards from an object that, it is, not worthy, that is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. 
So two ways, show me how something bad is or show me how something great, how great something else is. We all know this to be true, even in our own hearts. And there are probably a million different illustrations we could use. Everything from the simple things in life to larger things. Now, here, I have an example. It's a simple thing, right? An ice maker, right? It may sound a little silly, but this is true for me. I grew up never having an ice maker, right? And, um, you know, one built into the freezer, and I didn't really care. And Jessica and I, we bought our first house, no ice maker. I didn't care, just fill up the trays. A few hours later, presto, you got 24 cubes of ice, right? Um, Jessica, she did have an ice maker growing up, and she would often mention to me that someday she would like an ice maker, right? Now, <clears throat> fast forward 17 years, new house, new freezer, ice maker. I'm never going back. I'll tell you that, right? You could have told me a hundred ways to Friday that what I was doing by filling up the trays and spilling the water everywhere and moving the chicken nuggets out of the way to get them in the freezer, all that stuff, right? That that was not the best method. I didn't care. It was fine. It was great. It was fine until a new affection came along. Now you just flip the little rod down and next morning you got half a bucket of ice. Presto, right? How about a hobby or a favorite place to eat? They'll be your favorite place to eat or your favorite hobby until something else comes along. Why do video game makers come out with new versions of their games every year? What Chalmers is saying is, by simply showing the folly of one love isn't enough to expel it from our hearts. It must be replaced. He puts it like this. From the constitution of our nature... The former method, simply by showing the vanity of one thing, is altogether incompetent and ineffectual, and that the latter method, setting forth another object, will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that domineers over it. Now, to get to the bottom of this, he talks about love in two different ways, love as desire and love as indulgence. We have two different loves, right? Desire and indulgence. The thing we don't have and we want, we, we desire, and the thing we do have and we indulge in it. This is not a secret either. We are made to desire, to want. From the moment we're born to the moment we die, we are plagued in some regards, or blessed, with desire. Like I said, not all of them are bad, but all of them, all of our desires have the potential to be bad, to rule in our hearts. Here's Chalmers again. Under the impulse of desire, man feels himself urged onward in some path or pursuit of activity for its gratification. The faculties of his mind are put into busy exercise in the steady direction of one great and engrossing interest. His attention is recalled from the many rivers into which it might otherwise have wandered. He continues, Such is the demand of our nature for an object in pursuit, that no accumulation of previous success can extinguish it. And thus it is, the most prosperous merchant, the most victorious general, and the most fortunate gamester, when the labor of their respective vocations have come to a close, 
are often found to languish in the middle of all their acquisitions. It is quite in vain with such a constitutional appetite for employment in a man to attempt cutting away from him the spring or the principle of one employment without replacing it with another. The line in that quote, the most fortunate gamester, that made me think of, of Mr. Tom Brady. He was asked once, maybe some of you have heard this before, which one of his Super Bowl rings was his favorite? You know what his answer was? The next one. The next one. He's never satisfied. Always a desire for more. He can't stop. And neither can any of us. We can't just cut away, as Chalmers says, cut away the spring of one employment without providing another. That's the love that desires. It can be bad, and it can be good, which we will see later. Now, a quick look over at the love that indulges. When we think of the word indulge, in our culture, we almost always attach the adverb over, overindulge, right? That's not what he means here. Chalmers calls it a placid gratification with an object already in possession, right? So gratification that just kind of dies down, right? He gives the picture of a boy that grows into a man and his desires grow from his appetite to pleasure to wealth to power as he goes. The love that indulges wears out, but it must have something to replace it. It doesn't just go away. Here's how he puts it. There is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but as to its desire for having one object over another, this is unconquerable. Its adhesion to that on which it has fastened the preference of its regards cannot willingly be overcome by the rendering away of a simple separation. It can be done only by the application of something else to which it may feel the adhesion of a still stronger and more powerful presence. Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of and which, if wrestled away without the substitution of another something in its place, would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger to the stomach. It simply doesn't work. It's not how we were made. You can't just strip away a desire and not replace it. He goes on. The moralist who tries such a process of dispossession as this upon the heart is thwarted at every step by the recoil of its own mechanism. You have all heard that nature abhors a vacuum. Such at least is the nature of the heart. And though the room which is in it may change one inmate for another, it cannot be left void without the pain of the most intolerable suffering. It is not enough then to argue the folly of an existing affection. It may not even be enough to associate the threats and terrors of some coming vengeance with the indulgence of it. This is so helpful <clears throat> to me. The moralist will try to make this happen on his own. We've heard it a thousand phrase, times, right? Different phrases, especially in the Christian life when dealing with sin. 
man up. Quit sinning like this. Just stop. Stop Stop the drinking. Turn and run from the sin. Put down your phone. Bite your lip. Be kind. Don't do this. Don't do that. All of these have one great deficiency. They don't offer a replacement. A replacement that is more powerful and more wonderful than the affection that currently has a sinful hold on our hearts. Now, I hope you know where this is leading, right? We're four pages into this sermon here, and I haven't yet mentioned the gospel or God or in all of these affections, right? <clears throat> well, you are correct. God is the affection that displaces all evil affections and the affection that puts all good affections in their rightful place. I can stand up here and say, believe the gospel and all the affections of your heart will fall into place. If that is true, why do so many Christians still struggle so mightily with sin? Why is it so hard to get these affections in order, even for professing Christians? Day after day, year after year, you may have tried every trick under the sun, but to no avail. And I want to offer you some encouragement if you find yourself in this boat. And I also want to offer, along with Mr. Chalmers, some practical steps to make God the great affection of our heart. First, some encouragement. Know this, that you are not alone in your struggle against sin. It is the battle of every believer. And just when you feel like you have mastery over one sin in your life, another pops up. Now, not getting ahead of myself, but this is where the gospel is not just helpful, but powerful in the life of a believer. We see ourselves for who we truly are, more and more sinful, but we don't stay there. We also see God for who he truly is, more and more graceful and more and more merciful. So in your struggle against sin, don't slip away slowly, but hold fast because Jesus is better. We have two main forces battling against us, our own sinful nature and our enemy, the devil, who will use our sinful nature against us. But take heart, it is a battle that has been won by Jesus on the cross. Now, some practical steps in this battle. This is where 2 Corinthians comes in. I want to define the gospel here from this text. We talk about the gospel all the time in this church, right? It's in our name, for goodness sakes, Gospel Life Church. So what does it mean? We talk about the gospel in our lives, the power of the gospel to change us, the way the gospel can help us get our affections in order, but what is it? If I were to survey a hundred different people, I bet I might come up with a hundred different answers. I would also hope that they would all be fairly close to the same thing, and they would probably have all the same base elements in them. I'm guessing it would sound something like this. Here's my attempt, right? The gospel is the true story of God come in the flesh as a human to live the perfect life we could not live and die the death we deserve. He was buried and raised to life on the third day to validate or vindicate his message that all who believe in him will be saved from eternal death or hell and will dwell with him forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth. Something like that. 
And I would absolutely say, 100%, that is what the gospel is, especially when it comes to the salvation of a person. And if you're here today and that's not something you understand or not something you believe in, maybe today is the day you do repent and put your trust in Christ for the work he has accomplished. However, there is another way that I want to define the gospel from this text. And it's this. It's really simple. Seeing. The gospel is nothing more than seeing. And that's how it's defined in 2 Corinthians 4. It's nothing more than seeing. You can boil it down to that one word. Seeing. But what are you looking at when you see? So I have a longer version from this text. God's glory miraculously shining through our blindness to illuminate our minds and hearts in order to cause us to see Jesus for who he truly is more and more. Now keep that in the back of your mind. I'll say it again. Keep that in the back of your mind as we walk through this text in 2 Corinthians. I know it took a little while to get here, and if Justin were here, he'd be on me for this. But here we are, right? So we're going to walk through this text. Now let me say that longer definition one more time. God's glory miraculously shining through our blindness to illuminate our minds and our hearts in order to cause us to see Jesus for who he truly is more and more. Now to the text. I know Paul read all of verses 1 to 6, but I'm going to be focusing just on verses 4 and 6 today. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case talking about unbelievers in verse 3. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing. Stop right there. What Paul is saying here is that unbelievers, more precisely, he says in verse 3, those who are perishing are blind. They can't see. The God of this world, the devil, has blinded them. He has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? To keep them from seeing the light. The light of what? The light of the gospel. The gospel of what? The light of the gospel of the glory. The glory of who? Jesus Christ. The light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And who is he? The image of God. So they can't see God. They may think they see God, or see some made-up version of God who probably thinks and acts just like them. They may have a wrong idea of who God is, or a cultural idea of what God is like. And I'm sure many of us, in fact, all of us, were at one point like this, or maybe still are like this, blind, unable to see God for who he really is, unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The primary problem here is blindness. It's not God, it's not Christ, it's not the gospel, it's us. We can't see. We don't see God for who he really is. There is no light. And how are we supposed to remedy that problem? How is a blind man supposed to see? Well, skip to me, skip with me to verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there and tie in with verse 4. But first, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did God say that? When did he say that? What Paul is referring to is Genesis. Genesis 1, verse 3, right? The creation. Let there be light, and there was light. And I find it amazing and helpful that he goes all the way back to creation in Genesis. Now look at the parallel. I'll just read it. You can turn there later if you want, or if you can turn there now if you want, for goodness sakes. Genesis 1, verse 2. How does it describe the earth before the light? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then verse 3. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light. The old Latin phrase, ex nihilio, out of nothing. There is nothing in your heart that God uses, nothing in your life that he needs, nothing in your dead, blind, lifeless soul that caused him to look down and speak into it. Let there be light. And he did. And he did. And what happened? The same thing that happened at creation. Light. I once was blind, but now I see. Let there be light. So we can see miraculously. God miraculously shining. Meaning there is nothing the earth did to earn the light. And there is nothing you can do either to earn it. It is a gift from God. Not a work. Dead men don't work. And it was a supernatural work at creation. And it's a supernatural work in our hearts. The same God who spoke that in Genesis 1 spoke it into your heart and mine. Let light shine out of darkness to give the light. The light of what? Going back to verse 6. The light of the knowledge. The knowledge of what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The glory of God in what? The glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. So we have verse 4 and verse 6 as this kind of problem and solution. And they sound very much the same if you read them fast enough. <laughs> the major difference on the surface is that in verse 4, we have Satan blinding, and in verse 6, we had God, we have God giving light. Other than that, we have kind of the same thing, right? Or do we? Let's look closer. Verse 4. We'll go back to verse 4. In their case, the God of this world blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, look closer. The light came to illuminate our minds and our hearts. See, in verse 4, it's our minds that are blinded. And in verse 6, it's our hearts that receive the light. I take this to mean the simple acknowledgement of historical facts about Jesus are not sufficient. The devil himself knows these facts to be true. Anyone can consent to historical facts. The real question is, do they take root in your heart? in your affections. Is it just historical facts or is it life-giving treasure? 
But in verse 6, we also have the knowledge of the glory of God. Meaning, we also believe the facts. You can't love God and not the facts about him. You see people try this all the time. Well, I love God, but I don't believe the Bible. I don't think it's true. Well, you don't believe the facts about God. You don't love God. The light is the knowledge, the, the, the light is a light of knowledge and desire, the heart and the mind. So we have the light to see the facts about Jesus with our minds to see them as true, and we have the heart not just to see them as true, but to see them as beautiful. Heart and mind working together. Next is all the glory of God and Jesus and the gospel. And it all seems a little difficult to make sense of, no matter how slowly you read it and no matter how many times you read it. So I think, you know, the glory of God, the gospel of the glory of Christ, even I can't even read it, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, in verse 4, and in verse 6, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now I think I can melt this down in one simple sentence. God's glory is seen most clearly in his son Jesus. And Jesus' glory is seen most clearly in the greatest act of love, his death on the cross, the apex of the gospel. Let me say it again. God's glory is seen most clearly in his son Jesus. And Jesus' glory is seen most clearly in his greatest act of love, his death on the cross, the apex of the gospel. This is why I say the simplest way to explain the gospel in this text is to see. See the glory of God in Jesus and see the glory of Jesus in the laying down of his life at the cross. There is, of course, more to God and more to Jesus than just that. We have the entire Bible for a reason, but this is the apex of seeing one of the reasons I love this passage in 2 Corinthians and why I think it ties in so nicely with Mr. Chalmers is this. If the gospel is seeing Jesus more and more for who he really is, that applies to all of us. It doesn't matter if your Christian walk started last week, last month, or 50 years ago. You never outgrow your need to see him more and more. And by seeing him more and more clearly, the affection of our hearts gets, the affection of our hearts, they all get put in their proper place. Thomas Chalmers speaks again. In the gospel, we so behold God as that we may love God. It is there and there only where God stands revealed as an object of confidence to the sinners and where our desire after him is not chilled into apathy. It is God apprehended by the believer as God in Christ who alone can dispost the world from its ascendancy. It is when he stands dismantled of the terrors which belong to him as an offended lawgiver and when we are enabled by faith which is his own gift to see the glory to see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It is then that a love paramount to the love of the world and at length expulsive of it first arises in the regenerated heart. It is when 
It is when released from the spirit of bondage with which love cannot dwell and when admitted into the number of God's children through the faith that is in Christ Jesus, the spirit of adoption is poured upon us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires in the way in which deliverance, in the only way in which deliverance is possible. And that faith, which is revealed to us from heaven as indispensable to a sinner's justification in the sight of God, is also the instrument of the greatest of all moral and spiritual achievements as a nature dead to the influence and beyond the reach of every other application. A great and predominant affection. That is seeing Jesus more and more for who he truly is. Faith is also, as he says, the instrument of the greatest of all moral and spiritual achievements on a nature dead to the influence and beyond the reach of every other application. In other words, the means by which we progress in our moral and spiritual growth is by seeing Jesus more clearly. This is why we are always saying we never outgrow our need for the gospel. Whether it's regeneration, what we call saving faith, or sanctification, growing in faith, it's all the same. It's seeing Jesus more and more clearly. And there's dangers, right? After regeneration, there's always dangers. There's ditches on each side of the Christian life. And the gospel of seeing is so helpful to guard against these ditches. On the one hand, you have the ditch of pride, and on the other hand, you have the ditch of despair, and you run the risk of running into those ditches. Pride, because after conversion, you've made something of yourself, right? Or despair, because after conversion, you can't make anything of yourself. Seeing Jesus clearly is so helpful because the same way you were saved is the same way you grow. You don't worry about these ditches. It's not about you making something of yourself or you not making something of yourself. It's about seeing him clearly for who he is. You were saved by let there be light. And you grow by let there be more light. Now, I know some of you are asking, so how do we see better? All this talk of growing by seeing Jesus sounds great, and I get it. But what does it mean? How do I see him better? Because let there be light sounds wonderful, but I, like you, have to go to work tomorrow morning, right? So how do we do this? How do we see him better? And I have good news for you. You already know how to do this. The way you see is to look. And I know it sounds simple, maybe a little old-fashioned, but the way you see is to look. And we all know this, and we all know how to do it. Compare this to the other affections in your life. Here are some examples. Are you a Twins fan? I am, kind of. <laughs> Depends on how they're playing. <laughs> what is that my son is? If he were up here, my goodness, he could rattle off the stats. What does that look like, though? You watch or listen to the games. You know who the players are what the batting averages are, the home runs, the coaches. You probably go to a few games every summer. You're looking so you can see them better. Do you enjoy baking? I'm guessing you don't just grab a bunch of ingredients 
mix them up and hope, hope something comes out looking like a cake. You have a recipe and you follow it closely, sometimes exactly, right down to the teaspoon, right? Do you have a job? Did you become an expert at your job by never improving, never learning, never reading? I didn't. This is what I mean. You get good at the stuff you love by looking. Have you ever been to a trade show or a work conference? That's what that is. You get 3,000 IT people to sign up for a network security conference, right? Everyone there works for a different company, but they're all there with a common love for network security. They all talk and learn, and they go hear keynote speakers, see new products from the big network security companies, live podcasts, demonstrations. You know what they're doing. They're all looking to see network security more clearly. Have you ever heard of Jeeps? The Green Elevator and Processing Society. Every year they have a big conference to help them see how to process grain better. I would bet that almost everyone here has some sort of trade show or conference in whatever industry you're a part of. And probably some type of group or union or organization that sends you newsletters and updates every month. Why? So you can see better, teach better, be better electricians, better pastors, better at sales, better at being retired. That's what the AARP is, right? The American Association of Retired People. How to live life to the fullest when you're retired. I bet Art's got his card. <laughs> now that he's retired. We all know how to see things more clearly. We are very intelligent people. So look at Christ. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. Either by yourself or in a group. Or both. Please both. Go to church. I'm glad you're here. Fellowship with other believers. Read books about Christ. Read men like Thomas Chalmers. And most of all, most of all, ask God to help you see. He is a good and gracious father that loves his children. Ask him as you read his word to help you see Christ more and more. And the affections that are in our lives will take their rightful place under his rule. This is precisely what Chalmers means when he says this. We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God. And we know no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building ourselves up by our most holy faith. Maybe this illustration will help <clears throat> because it's a lot of work to do this sometimes. If you've ever been to Devil's Tower in Wyoming, you'll know what I'm talking about when I describe this. As you drive up, you can see it from miles away. This giant tower sticking straight up out of the flatland. And one could say at that point from miles away, there, I saw it. Let's go. Turn around and drive away. But if you really want to see Devil's Tower, you keep driving closer and closer. And it gets bigger and taller and more detailed, and you see more of the base and the rocks around it, you park your car at the National Park, you, you can look at it, you can see as you get that close all the lines 
in it. You walk up the paths. You start climbing up the boulders and stuff. And if you're really crazy, like I know some of you are, you get your climbing gear out and you climb all the way up to the top of the thing, right? And you stand on the top. Now, let me ask you this. Who knows that tower better? The guy who snaps a picture from 10 miles out or the guy standing at the top? One takes about two seconds. Get your phone out, hit the camera, snap, good, let's go. Yeah, I've seen the tower. The other one takes a lot of work to climb all the way up and stand on the top. And that's how you see Christ. Not by snapping a picture from 10 miles out, but by getting so close you can climb him. You can see the details. You know him that closely. I'll close with this last quote from Chalmers before we move to the table here. Conceive a man to be standing on the margin of this green world and that when he looked toward it saw an abundance smiling upon every field and all the blessings which earth can afford scattered in profusion without, throughout every family and the light of the sun sweetly resting upon all the pleasant habitations and the joys of human, human companionship brightening many a happy circle of society. Conceive this to be the general character of the scene upon which is one, um, the character of the scene upon one side of his contemplation. And that on the other, beyond the verge of this good planet on which he was situated, he could see nothing but a dark and fathomless unknown. Think you that he would bid a voluntary adieu to all the brightness and all the beauty that were before him upon earth, and commit himself to the frightful solitude away from it? Would he leave it, would he leave its peopled dwelling and, a, and become a solitary wanderer through the fields of non-entity? If space offered him nothing but a wilderness, would he for it abandon the scenes of life and of cheerfulness that lay so near and exerted such a powerful such a powerful urgency to detain him? But if during the time of his contemplation some happy island of the blessed had floated by in that dark space and there had burst upon his senses the light of its surpassing glories and the sounds of sweeter melody and he clearly saw that there a purer beauty rested upon every field in a more heartfelt joy, spread itself among all the families, and he could discern there a peace and a piety and a benevolence which put a moral gladness into every heart and united the whole society in one rejoicing symphony with each other and with the loving Father of them all. Could he further see that pain and mortality were unknown there? And above all, that signals of welcome were hung out and an avenue of communication was made for him. Perceive you not that what was once before the wilderness would become the land of invitation and that now the world would be the wilderness. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to let light shine in our hearts to see to help us see the glory of the gospel of Jesus. And we see it most clearly in the cross. Let this table now be a reminder that it was his sacrifice 
that allows us to see him more clearly. Help us to that end, I pray. Amen.